Welcome to building a hundred million pound business in public. Four years ago, I was having lunch with my friend Logan when we half joked about racing to a hundred million. And it's always stayed in my head. What does it take to build a hundred million pound business? On this podcast, I ask my network and speak to VCs, founders, DNI specialists, marketeers, and more to share their top tips. Some have made it, some are on the way, and all have a story to tell. Welcome to today's episode. I'm happy to welcome Michael Mellinghoff, who's the MD of Techfluence. Uh, he's been in the fintech space since 2013 and helped hundreds of fintech startups scale and fundraise. He's also launched the Fintech Germany Award in 2016. Welcome, Michael. Hi, James. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here. My pleasure. Uh, Perhaps you could tell us a bit more about yourself to start off with. Yeah, my name is Michael Mellinghoff. I'm, uh, as James said, uh, Managing Director of Techfluence UK, normally London-based. And uh, we help fintech startups uh, find investors, strategic contacts, uh, basically a coaching factory for, for founders dedicated to uh, the fintech space. That's uh, also the background uh, of myself. I was in the traditional banking system in the asset management area for about a bit longer than 10 years and then jumped ship back in 2010 or 11 into a German fintech, actually, when mm. at, at a time when the fintech term had not been coined yet. And uh, so I spent three years in that startup and learned to see the world from a completely uh, different angle. That was very helpful. And then uh, after we exited, I had heard the term fintech all the way down uh, from London. So this is when I moved uh, to London in 2014. I think I started commuting and then completely settled in London uh, late 2015 or early 2016. Well, because you, you've got a unique viewpoint in that you've been doing it in Germany as well, as well as the UK, and you've moved around. Like, do, do, do you see differences in, in, in the two? Oh, there are massive differences if you compare uh, now, particularly UK and uh, Germany. UK is very, or let's say, fintech in UK. And I know that some people would beat me up for that, but uh, London obviously take a big a big chunk of the fintech industry within uh, UK. There are other locations within UK, uh, Wales, Scotland, uh, Belfast. I mean, they're, they're, it's mushrooming everywhere. That's true. But London takes a big chunk. So it's very London-centric. And that's why UK is very interesting for uh, for many industries, not only for fintech. But if you conquer London, you basically conquer UK. Mm. So that's the UK side of things. If you look at uh, Germany, you have a completely decentralized market. You have various cities, uh, the big ones that everyone know, uh, Hamburg, Munich, Frankfurt, uh, Berlin, obviously Berlin being the startup capital uh, of Germany, also very strong in, in, in fintech, I think leading in terms of number of uh, fintechs founded there, which is not a surprise because you have uh, a startup ecosystem there that uh, the other cities that I mentioned didn't have in the beginning. But this is building up. So Germany is much more uh, decentralized, uh, many cities, and you do have a um, bit less competition, I think, but it's harder to conquer the market anyway. So if you've conquered the German market, I think that's because it's harder, uh, it's much more sustainable. So if, if you had to choose then one, if, if you were to advise a new founder who's launching a business, where, where would you advise them to, to launch? 
where he is actually and uh, where he um, has his uh, his home and his uh, in nowadays uh, in the pandemic situation that we are unfortunately still in. I would always say found from home, find, find the network and the people uh, in the uh, fintech community, which is global by now. And whether you're a developer is uh, next to you in your office or whether he is 2,000 kilometers away does not really play a role anymore. It's about uh, the people and the dedication. And we got used to hiring people on uh, on the screen. That was unthinkable. I mean, fintech, huge fintech fundings have been done. Uh, new investors leading rounds. I didn't know the founder team before. So um, that is something which we unfortunately all have to get used to. It was unthinkable, but uh, it's a catalyst for 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 change and that is uh, one of them and it's been successful so far mm. but actually your viewpoint on the hiring part <laughs> would be much more relevant than mine of course <laughs> well i mean personally I, th i actually really excited about global like this is true globalization in terms of like if you think you want great talent suddenly the fact that you can hire people from wherever just massively increases the talent pool you have access to. So, I mean, yes, I think there are challenges to doing it right. Like, how do you how do you interview effectively? How do you do cultural sort of tests? How do you onboard effectively? How do you maintain culture? Um, how do you how do you avoid sort of all the subtle unconscious discrimination that goes along with sort of video interviewing? And so, I, I think there's lots of challenges. But I think as an overall thing, I think it's really exciting for businesses because. The best businesses will just attract the best talent, and and they can get the best talent from from wherever. So, I'm very excited about that side of things. Um, for, for you, in terms of your your top tip, and you you've seen loads of businesses from early stage through to later stage. What would be your sort of top tip around thing to do, thing not to do to to achieve a hundred million? Yeah, that's the. <laughs> the, the big question. I think there is not one uh, one thing we advise to uh, to each and every of them. There's not like a standard uh, agenda that uh, that we use because um, every startup is different. Every subsector of fintech is different. Every situation, every founder, it's so diverse. But one thing that um, I think is a challenge for for every founder uh, at some point at the road, some earlier, others later, is uh, focus, 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 focus. Um, many founders are uh, people with great ideas, but uh, if you want to execute um, a successful business model, you also have to uh, leave some chances uh, on the side at some point of time. So if you believe you have found your business model, um, stick to it, um, focus on it. If there are other things that would completely change um, the organization and uh, the scope and so on, if it's a bigger opportunity, Fantastic. If you found it, pivot fast as fast as you can uh, and, and go for that. But but then focus on this running dual track, this and that, the likelihood it doesn't work is very high. And that's very difficult sometimes to explain uh, to founders because they might have uh, two brilliant ideas. But uh, the question uh, whether they can execute on both of the brilliant ideas, they, they don't ask. They only have one, one brain, basically. And I think it needs both halves of it to focus on one, uh, one, one, one business uh, model, one business idea. 
Um, obviously, there are exceptions to the rules, but uh, that's one thing that uh, always comes up. Focus, 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 because it is very hard. Competition is fierce. Our experiences, even if you have uh, an idea and you believe you're the only one, you do a year of research uh, and, and uh, looking at com potential competition and so on, you don't see anyone, the likelihood there's still a competition somewhere and you just don't see it. Mm. Although we have all the transparency by the internet nowadays, the likelihood is very high. So I've experienced this myself. Um, suddenly a competitor pops up uh, in, in Asia somewhere. There's still a lot of intransparency in the market and wanted one because um, many people who uh, know they sit on a very good idea will uh, you know, basically prepare it to perfection and then go to the market when the market is right, when the product is right, everything is ready. And then uh, they access the, uh, the marketing pool of money and, and then uh, go out. So uh, this, uh, that is also something not to be uh, underestimated. So we're saying there's quite a few like, so there's some stealth competition out there who, who are putting exactly what you're doing and they're just, re they're just ready to scale. Stealth competition is always something, saying I was looking for that word, uh, stealth competition uh, is something which um, you definitely have to be aware of the possibility mm. um, that, that it's still out there, even if you believe you have that. There are very few situations where that uh, was not the case. There's an Austrian company where I thought uh, their business model uh, seems to be healthy and so on. Somebody else must copy that, have done something similar. It's called Wikifolio. Um who basically are stock traders and they're, uh, they, they build wrappers for um, stock, sorry, stock listed wrappers uh, of individual portfolios run by uh, private people, basically. That's only possible in the uh, German, Austrian and Swiss jurisdiction. Not sure in the UK and certainly not in the US. That's something where I thought there would be uh, copycats coming up. No copycat uh, has come up yet, for example. Well, maybe after listening to this podcast, you you just you just spawned a couple of copycats. Um, I think they're up for sale, actually. So right. I think that the founder just announced that they uh, would be open. But let's see. Well, I, I, for me, I always think that competition is a sign that you're doing something right. Like if you're the only person following an idea, like no, I was thinking like, like think of coffee shops, for example. You go, there can't possibly be another coffee shop. And then literally there's a new brand and suddenly they mushroom or like recruitment companies, always a new one or yeah. like there is always room for one more. It comes down to execution. Absolutely. So execution um, is key. And uh, this is another thing that uh, we also see um, Smart founders know when it's uh, the right time to give up the CEO role. That's uh, obviously very hard. It's your baby. You, you, it was your idea. You bring it up. You found the core team in the beginning. But um, there's a difference in setting up a business, founding it, um, grooming it in the beginning and so on, and then scaling it. So if you're a scale type of manager, great. Um, then you might have your challenges more early onwards, uh, but then scale it yourself. If you're um, if you're not a scaling person, it makes sense to take a look uh, when is the right time to step aside, and that means giving up control. Obviously, uh, that that your share in the company is probably uh, a huge amount of money that you n nowhere else would be close close to getting it. So giving that one up, although you are a chairperson, an advisory 
board, you know, you have the shareholders meeting and uh, to control things, but that's a, that's a big step. So that's another thing that uh, we always uh, try to, to chip into when, when is the right time to, 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 to share. Yeah. I was someone, someone told me, do, 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 do you want to be rich or do you want to be in charge? <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> um, but I said that resonates with me. Like I definitely think for me, like my background was more sort of the scaling part, like fixing and scaling. And therefore I actually find more challenge in the early stage it's a lot more about detail and getting really into the operational stuff and then i'm more comfortable once it's got teams and scaling yeah. but you see a lot of founders who are really good at what they do really want to be in all the details and it's really hard for them to step back and delegate absolutely but uh, the smart ones will know that and then uh, rather go for and these are the ones that very often then have another idea uh, and they're more ready than obviously uh, to not to jump ship. They're still in, uh, invested in uh, the first one. And these are then serial entrepreneurs, obviously, where uh, there are not too many really good ones. Yeah. Well, I, th I think when you do your very first startup, it's you think you know what you're doing, but you often don't. You're, you're driven by this, this sort of blind confidence because you don't know what you don't know and and you just just want control of everything and it feels like as you do later ones or maybe as you get more mature you're more willing to go control you know what you don't know and that sense of like it's my business my way goes away a little bit is that is that your do, do you see that with like repeat entrepreneurs yeah, I think that's uh, the, 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 the big question. My question to you would actually be, how do you find out in your uh, interviews that you do, what type of uh, founder you have uh, sitting on the other side or on the, on, on, on the round table uh, having a discussion with you? Which type of questions do you ask him to see whether this could be the person that is very happy to be in the full in transparency uh, that you uh, just described and still take the smart and, and, and right decision? It's a great question, Michael. <laughs> I, I think as in most things, I think I'd ask for examples. Like I'd, I'd, try, I'd try and do, do a scenario and then ask, ask for an example of when they've actually done it and then talk through it. And I, th and I think you can see from how like evidence-based evidence-based answers are really useful, but you can also get a sense of whether they're whether they believe it. Like I think some people, particularly smart people, they're smart enough to know what they should say. It's just whether they'll actually do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another thing that we find out, uh, but this only you will see um a bit later on, uh, a bit later down the uh, down the road. Uh, the, the smart founders know when to listen. Uh, they always have their, their, their own conviction and they know that in the past they have taken right decisions, but the smart founders somehow seem to know when they should listen to an advisor, whether that is an investor, whether it's uh, somebody they meet on uh, a conference or uh, it's an external advisor that they booked. Um, the smart founders seem to know when it's uh, a good piece of uh, advice and be it maybe sometimes a very small thing. That's uh, also very, very interesting because usually they are bound to be the ones because they're the last man standing in the company. They have to take the final decisions. And very often in the, the fields that 
they might not even be the experts in because they're generalists as founders. You have to be a generalist and you can't deep dive into each and every um, topic, but they still have to take the right decisions. And so when, and I have not found out uh, how they do that, actually. That is, I think, a very interesting piece. It's, I mean, it's really hard because I think as, as a founder, you get so much advice, like so much unasked for advice as well. Everyone, everyone's got an opinion. And obviously, when you've launched it, so much about your business is wrong like and unproven. But at the same time, you've got to believe in what you're trying to achieve. And so it's kind of like, and going back to your sort of focus, 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 I think that is probably the hardest one. It's like, and you probably do need some external advice, but which is the right one to go, okay, I've got these two ideas. I mean, maybe we've got these three ideas, but which is the one? Because you can you can so easily keep on jumping from like one, two, three, or you can try and do all three at the same time. But which, yeah. and that, I mean, if you've got a view on that, like how do you, <laughs> how do you narrow it down? How do you go, okay, well, I could pivot. I could stick with, I could stick with my original plan. What are the sort of things you might look at? Yeah. I think one thing is that, as you mentioned, um, they get a lot of advice. Yeah. Uh, everyone has an opinion. So they talk to a number of people and the smart people, the smart founders know to whom to listen, but they also get, uh, you know, maybe a similar type of advice from, from similar people and then find their uh, own opinion, their own conviction in that. Yeah. It is. I think if you, it's about having not just one person you listen to, but also not having ten. Like there's there's probably like a healthy number of like, I would say there's maybe as many max three people you could you could really listen to before you start mm. getting confused. I mean, you've got three really good advisors who are giving you special advice on different areas. Um, mm. That would fail to be about right. What 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 would you think? Well. Probably not always the same three. I think it depends very much on uh, the situation uh, that you are and the type of question you're dealing with. So probably you would have to, uh, if the number of three, which sounds reasonable to me, um, you probably have to look then for three people that you would accept advice from and then uh, listen to them. But I think it's not going to be always the same. Maybe one, you know, maybe there's one advisor. Very often it's a partner. Um that you know is simply uh, an accomplice, basically from from day one. Um, that that I could imagine uh, someone who's super close and is an advisor knows everything and also sometimes very personal uh, questions of of the founder. I mean, all the decisions we see are obviously also um, influenced by the the the, the personal sphere of uh, the founder, which uh, very often the business people surrounding him don't know. So it's a mix of the three is also important. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because I, I look, I was talking about this with my business partner who we did our, our startup with in 2010. Um, and we were talking back through things we wish we'd done differently. Just And one of the things we said was at the time, we were just so convinced that it was our, our way. And actually, we wish we'd had someone, whether it was... I'm not even sure it's a non-exec. Like I think now maybe a coach, like a coach to like talk through some of this stuff, someone that's on your side, not trying to necessarily give you advice, but just someone you can create space with and talk to, mm-hmm. I, I think would have been really 
valuable to us back then because there was lots we didn't know, but it felt you're kind of in a weird position where you want you want to do it your way. And sometimes it feels, particularly when you're getting mentored, it's sometimes quite a bit older, you feel like you're kind of getting pushed, you can feel like getting pushed into stuff. And I think as a sort of a youngish entrepreneur, that push creates a creates a reaction where you kind of push back, whereas a coaching is a bit more collaborative. Yeah. You need a sparing, yeah, absolutely right. You need a sparing partner, and uh, yeah, it's the founder is. Uh, I mean, norm. I would say this comes. Hopefully, there's a sparing partner. If there's no sparing partner, it's a bit more 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 difficult. But usually, founders do have a sparing partner. That could be the accomplice that I mentioned, the 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 the, the partner or uh, a sibling. Yeah, we've seen a few um, situations where then um, family members uh, were involved, which when you see that in uh, a bigger company, it's always a bit of a, <laughs> it looks a bit strange, but uh, it's not rare in um, the founder scene. And I'm sure you've seen this uh, also in, 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 in your work, that this comes up. Whether this is then made public or not is a, is a different question. I think it's a good idea to make it public uh, in terms of trust because all about trust in, in especially in the early days of uh, life of a company. But that's uh, then the natural uh, sparings partner for all the questions that uh, the founder uh, might have. And they have a bunch of questions quite naturally because they have to, as mentioned before, have to take decisions Uh, and always the final decision they have to make sure and they don't have budget to get uh, uh, advisors mm. especially in the fintech space you need obviously legal advice for, on regulation and so on if you're a fintech founder and you don't look at regulation early on the likelihood you fail is very high so that budget that you have you have to spend on on regulatory questions but there are so many other questions that one should actually discuss with maybe Uh, an, a legal advisor, tax advisor, or a specific advisor, and uh, you don't want to spend uh, the budget. Yeah, that's uh, and then you have to take a decision in 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 the unknown, obviously, which uh, bears some risks. But again, the smart founders are somehow capable of doing exactly that. Mm. Well, Michael, I, I think what I've really taken from today is this kind of two things. One is this idea of like focus, focus, focus. And then, and then going out and finding the right advisors because it, it feels like the two kind of mesh together quite nicely. Like you need someone to help you focus, focus, focus because you're going to keep on coming up against these decision points. Yeah. Advisors, um, I would actually rephrase into partners in crime. I think that's, uh, that is important uh, to have. You need advisors who are... Uh, in it somehow and uh, by the idea in uh, in terms of content um i think that's that that is uh, that is important there are so many advisors there are so many opinions out there but you need the people that are uh, with you in, uh, in 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 the boat as uh, we would say in german i don't know what the proper english expression is but uh, i quite like the picture of that um and then uh, i think there are good chances uh, nowadays that you find uh, other partners who are interested investors and so on and i think that's a, maybe um As, as, a, as a final statement, we are still early days in the financial technology space. We should never forget that the whole thing came up about 10 years ago. And if you look at how and what state banks are still, and I'm looking now at the German market, I mentioned that big banks are shrinking branches, but there are still banks with hundreds 
in thousands, I think, of branches, um, certainly all over. Um, and people and less and less, especially also by the pandemic, they don't go into a branch anymore. So the whole way of thinking was always channeled to uh, through the branches because that's where the clients were. And now obviously they have started looking also in other ways, but the focus of thinking has not arrived yet in the digital world in many banks. So there's uh, still loads of opportunity for fintech founders. The obvious B2C business models, I think we have seen, but in the B2B space, um, there's so much more uh, to get. We're only now seeing, we had the uh, IPO of WISE, formerly uh, TransferWise, just uh, I think two or three days ago or last, last week. And that has uh, that that's a B2C business model, which is uh, super successful. And uh, the B2B ones, uh, there might have been a mini IPO here and there, uh, but the big ones are still out there. So there's uh, ample opportunity. Thanks for listening today. And hopefully you've taken away one thing to think about or try. Let me know in the comments if there's something you'd like us to explore in future episodes or just reach out on LinkedIn or podcast at district4.io. Let's keep learning and building great companies together.